Michelle with Explicitly Sick on the Invisible Not Broken Network. And this podcast is going to be all about just chatting about life with disability and chronic illness. I'll be interviewing authors and artists and business owners and people just with different disabilities. special episode again we're starting a brand new podcast and it's gonna be called pass the mic and i am going to find all the people i twitter stalk on twitter i do that often and people who i think have really important things to say i am going to be begging and asking nicely for them to come on to talk about issues that are incredibly important um so you might remember Tinu from last week, and I have um, kidnapped her yet again because uh, <laughs> we can't stop talking. Uh, so I, I'm really going to keep trying to convince her to start her own podcast on this Invisible Not Broken Network. But today we're going to be discussing medical racism. We've talked about that before. I yeah. think it's an issue that needs to be talked about consistently. So buckle up. We're going to be doing this a lot. Um, this is such an important issue. You may have read some of the latest um, studies and some of the more important discussions, which are racism is a medical issue from underprescribing drugs, not believing people when they say that they're in pain. Um, and of course, physical beatings do affect health. So we're going to be going through all of this. So Tino, thank you so much. And um, yeah, we, we did a whole podcast before we hit record. I, I'm I just going to start something. hitting record. <laughs> yeah, so much to talk about. So many different topics. Yeah. So many different I, I'm just going to keep parallel. kidnapping you until you just decide to do your own podcast on this network. Well, is it kidnapping if I consent, though? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I, I feel a little guilty because I enjoy our chat so much. I'm like, I, it can't be as much fun. Like, <laughs> Me too. It's almost not work, right? It, it so isn't. I mean, I really look forward to these. Me too. Me too. So where are we going to start in our whole medical racism journey? There's so much to talk about. <laughs> we could talk about, you know, I could talk about my personal experiences. We could talk about the research that people have done. We could talk about why do you need to do research when people could just believe us? <laughs> you know, there's so many <laughs> the, you go in. The labor that you have to do to convince someone that you're telling the truth so that they can oh, then gosh. debate you if you're telling the truth is such utter horseshit. Um, yeah, we're going to start exploring really this, this episode because um, that is absolute bullshit that you have to do the labor to even try to convince someone to believe you just so that they can have a debate where they aren't at stake. That drives me, yeah. That's it, as I'm sure it does you. Um, let's start with personal experiences. Real quick, if you are thinking this is not an issue and you're just going to skip by this and you need a gateway into this, John Oliver did an amazing episode on medical bias. So yeah. if that's your gateway you need, go ahead and check out John Oliver. I will have that in the top of the show notes. Um, I do find John Oliver a very, very quick, easy way to get some you know, uh, bridging, but um, I, I really hope you stay tuned for Tina's story because it's an amazing story. So I will let you just start with your personal experiences. Those are very important. Well, before I go into my own thing, I do want to tell people there is a Jedi mind trick you can do if you find yourself trying to get assistance when you go to the emergency room to get help. If you're trying to get them to give you your pain medicine, Tell them that you're not leaving until they figure out what's wrong with you. Tell them that you don't want them to just shove pills at you and that you need them to figure out what's wrong with you. I guarantee you that they are going to try to give you some kind of medicine to shut you up. 
And this works? Like they will actually try to figure out what's wrong with you? They will pretend that they're trying to figure it out for about an hour or so. And then they'll give you, they'll tell you, well, you know, can you follow up with your, you know, medical professional and we give you, you know, this muscle relaxer or this other thing in a combination of that and this pain medicine. And then you have to reluctantly accept it. Um, Where were you for the last 20 years of my life? <laughs> that would have been so I helpful. I've been this out in the past couple of years. Um, <sighs> it's how I got them to give me back my tramadol after all of this time. Like one tramadol allows me to work. Like one. And you had to fight for tramadol? Yes. Baby pill tramadol. Yes. I'm so disgusted. I've heard so many stories that leave me disgusted and I'm never not shocked. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Baby. Okay. So let's explain what you have so that people can feel the full horror of that. Baby tramadol seems to be an acceptable level of what pain medication you should be on. Okay. So I have, um, Oh, wait, let me go back and finish the Jedi mind trick though. Oh, sorry. The other part of the the flip side of the Jedi mind trick is if you want them to figure out what's wrong with you, ask for pain medicine. Tell them you don't want to go through the whole thing where they give you a billion tasks to figure out what's wrong. Just relieve my pain and let me get the hell out of here. They will put you through every machine they can think of. So those are the two Jedi mind tricks. It takes a little bit of finessing and acting, but um, those two things. The I third just need thing to put is- a small writer on that last statement just really quickly because I almost mm-hmm. got in trouble with that one. Um, there is a thing called a list. And if they feel like you are drug seeking, you can get put on that list. That. Oh, good. So yeah. sorry. Yes. Go for it. Yeah. You, yeah. If they think that you are a drug seeker and you have the pattern of a drug seeker, that is going to be a problem. So make sure that you have your information of your primary doctor for them to look at, okay, this is the person who normally gives me my medicine and that you are out of your medication between your your prescriptions if at all possible and also i hate to say this but you will probably have to make physical noises in order to get them to to pay attention to you if you're quiet they somehow think that means that you're not in pain so it's a little bit riskier to try to get your medicine in the er i would advise you to talk to your doctor before you leave I just want to add one other thing is to ask them if it's, ask them if it's your pain level or their pain level. I found that to be really effective as well. Yeah. So it's the, the other, the pain medicine side of the Jedi mind trick is not as, um, it's not as, um, what do you call it? It's not as reliable, but it's more of a, I'm desperate and I have, I've tried everything else, but, um, the other one works pretty well. Okay, but going back to my story, I guess we can start with all the things that I have. So, okay, um, I have spinal degenerative disorder. I've had that since 1993. Um, I have nerve damage as a result of not being able to treat it because, you know, that knocked me into the pre-existing health condition thing. So I couldn't afford on and off to treat my condition. Um, I would have to pay cash for things. They and you know sometimes I needed physical therapy. There were months when, excuse me, my um, the my treatment cost more than my rent or mortgage, and sometimes I just couldn't afford to treat myself. So I would you know not be able to work, and I kept slipping back and forth between like 
poverty and then being able to work and then not being able to work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, over time, I also developed, um, well, I found out in my 20s that I had a dormant form of cancer that was very slow moving. I was told that it was it might not even ever become a problem in life. Um, I was able to save it off from becoming active for about 20 years. In 2016, I was um, diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic um, leukemia as an active cancer. Um, and one of the symptoms of that is bone pain. It's very complicated in how to um, get treatment for it and to alleviate the pain. The only thing that works for me is a combination of antihistamines and medical marijuana. Um, sometimes I can microdose the medical marijuana with the tramadol and that will work. But for a long time, I couldn't get the tramadol. Um, I also have fibromyalgia. And um, I also have um, arthritis in both of my knees and my right hand. So um, it's a lot of, I lost the window. It's a lot, there it is. I lost, there's a lot of, um, those are all of my pain conditions, but there's a lot of other things that I have that complicate the issue. Like I have asthma, I have remaining lung damage from the time that I had, that I almost died from pneumonia in 2012. Um, when I had the CLL, when I was, had chemo for that, I have like a tumor in my lung. So I had like stage zero lung cancer, but the chemo cleared it up. Um, you know, I have anemia, I have anxiety, I have depression, and that sometimes results in pain system, symptoms or heightened pain because of, you know, heightened pain for the other conditions. So, you know, kind of a big old complicated mess. Um, and so those are most of my conditions. And what would happen is during those times when I could not get, I couldn't afford treatment and I would get, you know, desperate for something, you know, to relieve my pain at least enough so that I could go and look for work, I would go to the hospital. And when it was like, you know, the 90s, I could go into the hospital and especially in when I lived in Nevada, because I used to live in Vegas, I could go to like Desert Springs Hospital and they would say, okay, you know, give us $200 and we'll give you a shot of morphine or whatever it was just to get you through the right now and then we'll bill you for the rest. And, um, you know, that would work pretty well and I would at least be able to get back to work. And then, you know, around 2000, they started to, you know, start treat me like you were treating me like I was a drug seeking person, whether it was in, you know, Nevada or Maryland or wherever I would go, or even if I was traveling for conferences and stuff like that, they just started to see us as, okay, first of all, we don't think you're in pain. A lot from, from the time of slavery, people, especially doctors have believed that black people have physically thicker, thicker skin and that we don't feel pain at all or we don't feel pain as much as white people which is ridiculous you know the factor that makes our race different than other people is like something like 0.01 percent of our biology it, it makes it's a very slight difference so they, it just doesn't make any sense that we would have different nerve endings or different anything you know 
but they experimented on women to on black women to create the field of gynecology um, without an, any anesthesia at all. Um, and speaking of which, while I was here in Texas, I needed to, my doctor um, asked me if I wanted to have my Metaport taken out that I had one that I had put in when I had chemo. And when I had it put in in Maryland, where they have, um, uh, where they accepted the Medicaid expansion, they put me under and had a surgery and they put the Metaport in. And here in Texas, where they do not have the Medicaid expansion, my health care is provided to me by a nonprofit, JPS Health. So when it was time to take the Metaport out, I just assumed that since they knocked me out for the surgery, they were going to knock me out to take it out. They did not. They used lidocaine, injected it into my chest, and then proceeded to yank it out. And when I say yank, my sister was in the room. I do mean yank it out and the, the cord that was attached into my chest. Not only that, by the time when they finished, and I kept telling them that it hurt, it hurt, it hurt, and they used the whole bottle of lidocaine in, in my chest, and it still didn't numb it enough. But it was like it was. Um, by the time it started hurting, it we were halfway through the thing, so I just wanted them to finish, and I kept thinking, "Oh, they're almost finished. They're almost finished. They're almost finished." It took over an hour, and um, when they were finished, not only did they just take forever doing it at the end they thought they left a plastic piece in there and that it went into my heart so i then had to be taken to the hospital to see if they if they had left a plastic piece of the the um metaport and that it had slipped into my heart so if i had not brought my own muscle relaxer with me to take right before this operation i don't know what would have happened like they didn't give me any type of medication at all. In fact, the nurse right beforehand laughed at me when I said, you know, do you mean you're not going to, you know, give me any medication or put me under at all? She looked at the other nurse and said, <laughs> you know, she wants, you know, and winked at the other lady. And I was thinking to myself, really, they're really sitting here thinking that it's funny that I would want medication for this. Like they sliced open my chest. Like, why wouldn't I want medication for that? So, you know, of course I complained about it, but you know what, I haven't heard back about it since. So as you can, as you might think, I'm very reluctant to go back there for healthcare, but I don't have any other choice. Texas did not accept the Medicaid expansion. They still have not accepted my application to say, you know, about how I am a disabled person and can't take, you know, the medication. I mean, that, that, I, that I'm a disabled person and can't um, accept the, um, hold on a second. I'm sorry. I said I wasn't going to be available before one. Who is knocking? Go. That wasn't even the only time that in Texas that they have operated on me without anesthesia. But at least the other times, it was very short. There was an injection. There was, you know, a slight, you know, incision, and that was it. But this time, I mean, it was so, you know, there's a lot more involved in the Metaport, and it had been in there since 2016. It was fused with my flesh, you know, and it took them a while to get it out of there. So I'm never going to trust them with any type of surgery on my body again. After that, I didn't go to the doctor for three months because it was just like, I was traumatized. I was completely traumatized by that experience. And I did not want to go back. So, you know, those are the type of things that have been, been happening to me. You know, I go to the emergency room and they don't want to treat me because, you know, they don't listen to women. They don't listen to black women even more, you know, our, um, 
it's the black women birth rates are, are um, lower. And people thought it was at first because of race, but it's because of racism. They did some studies between, excuse me, 2006 and now that they've repeated a couple of times that show that it is racism. That's the reason that the, the babies are being born smaller. Um, there was also that study they did about the idea that you can pass on your stress from racism in your life to the next generation. Some people say that study has been debunked, but I don't really know if that's true, you know? I wonder also, you know, with people who are Jewish, are they also passing on their trauma to their kids? You know, if the trauma changes the cells in your body, are we passing it on to the next generation? Who knows? But um, all of those types of things are, are, are things that have, that, that have happened to me. I've also gone to doctors and told them, you know, it, it took me so many years to get people to, to even consider that I would, that I had a fibro, that I had a thyroid problem. Um, it took me about six years from the first time I noticed I had an issue to get somebody to actually take the test. And I had to switch to uh, an Indian female doctor to get somebody to check my thyroid. Also, when my cancer became active, I, that same Indian doctor, I had been telling the doctor that dealt with my pain before that I didn't feel right, that it didn't feel right. He stopped listening to me, so I stopped going to him. It was for about a year where I kept feeling worse and worse and worse. When the cancer was coming on, it felt like somebody was pulling the energy out of my body by a string, like through my spine, just a string. It literally felt like they were pulling the energy through out of my spine. And um, when I went to see this woman, she took one look at me and she could tell my lymph nodes were, were swollen. Like right now, they're slightly swollen even right now, but they were so swollen that she could tell on site that there was something wrong with me. She did the test, she, she did the blood test and right away she knew and she sent me to the hematologist and it, I was stage three at that time. If she had not said anything or noticed or done the blood test, within a year I would have been dead. So. It's just so important to also pick the right doctor. I picked a um, I picked a foreign trained doctor because I believe that they are more likely to look at you as a whole person, and that they are also the training is different as far as compassion and integrating, you know, all of the different um, all different things that they learn into one. You know, they don't kind of divorce. The, the idea about something being wrong with your ear might be related to something that's wrong with, you know, your nose and your throat, you know, rather than you having to go to an ear, nose and throat specialist to figure that out. So, um, and then the, 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 the people that I went to, that she, the hematologist that she went to, that she sent me to was a Chinese woman who's working with also with an Indian doctor. And they were very, very, compassionate and they practice um and I didn't know what it was called at the time but they practiced trauma-informed care and they could tell that I had been traumatized in my life and they treated me differently like I have post-traumatic stress disorder from you know being sexually assaulted as a child and they noticed early on that I have an exaggerated startle re reflex. If people approach me from behind, you know, 
I get into a fight stance. Like I've hit people because they surprised me too fast. And so they, they notice that right away. They, they don't approach me from directly behind me. They walk all the long way around me. They don't shout at me. They talk to me gently. They always gave me the private room so that I wouldn't, you know, be surprised by people. Like every single visit except one for chemo, they put me in the private room. Um, and this is a, a weird thing that I've, I've never said to anybody. They said frequently, we love you, which I've never heard from any other doctor in any other practice in any other place ever. And it made such a difference when I was trying to fight for my life because I felt like they didn't just like theoretically care and kind of want me to do better or whatever. It's like they really wanted me to make it, you know? And I felt like, I just felt like I was being um, brought through the experience with this expectation that I was going to live rather than being treated like, you know, this dead person who was being prepared for, well, this probably isn't going to work, but we're going to do our best, you know? So it, it just makes a, a, a huge difference. In fact, the when this COVID-19 thing started, even though I haven't been at their practice in over three years and they know that I've moved to Texas, they sent me an email telling me all of the things they were doing about COVID-19 and all the precautions that I should take. And the email started out, remember, we care for you, we love you, and we want to make sure that you're okay. And it was just, it just made such a huge difference, you know, in that time being, you know, immunocompromised and thinking that, you know, being scared every time I cough, you know, it just made such a huge difference. It was so comforting. So just that contrast between that kind of care and not knowing that anything else like that was out there and this medical racism that you faced your whole life. People thinking, you're not really sick. No, you're just fat. You know how your people are. You just, you know, you just, guys just tend to have more fat in that area. You're not really sick. You're not sick. You just need to lose weight. You're not sick. You're just, you know, your people are like that. Are you sure you're not, you don't have diabetes? All your people have diabetes, you know, and just being treated like, you know, you're not really a person. You're not really um, I don't want to say you're not really human, but that's what it feels like. I want to say it's more like you're a number, like you're just a, a check, some something to check off of a list, you know. Uh, but that's been my experience with the medical um, professional community, which is a shame because I have a lot of medical professionals in my family. So I know what it's supposed to be like. But because of being, you know, a spoonie and having this high touch, this, you know, because of this chronic illness, I have this high touch experience with the medical um, professionals and the medical community. I see a lot more than most people see. And in seeing that, I see the, the, the underbelly. I see frequent users are not treated, you know, the same way that most other people are. But the perception on TV is that everybody's treated like they are on House MD. Oh, you have an interesting problem. We're going to solve it. And it's never like that, you know? So, the greatest lie on television. I tell you.
you know when you you have this hope when you when something when you first find out something's really you know more wrong with you than usual you think okay they're gonna figure it out and everything's gonna be okay because you're gonna get one of those superstar doctors and they're gonna fix everything and then you find out no <laughs> no they're gonna give you they're gonna give you a medication and then you're gonna come back and say that didn't work and then they're gonna give you a different medication and you're gonna say that didn't work and that's gonna happen over and over again for uh, until they're tired of giving you different medications and then they're just gonna say mm, thanks for your money please go home yeah and if you're lucky they give you the medication or if, if you're, you're lucky, lucky exactly. yeah I would love for you to, uh, before we get into the history of racism and medical, yeah. I'd love for you to just go into the privilege level of people going, well, if you have this bad experience, why didn't you just get a new doctor? Oh, and I'd love for you to address that privilege. Like, I, okay. I, yeah. So I am from an upper middle class black family. So I do have some privilege where before I started going went out on my own in my 20s you know I had the privilege where okay this doctor isn't working for me I'll try another doctor although I had to try another doctor within the same framework the problem is number one doctors can put things in your notes that especially back then before we had you know the right to see our doctor's notes saying this is a problem patient and they keep complaining. So if they say any crap that you don't like, don't listen to them or, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. I've tried with this person and they suck. They can put anything they want in your notes, in, in, in the notes about you. And that can affect how the next doctor perceives you. So that's number one. And then number two, not everybody can switch to even, you know, if you are a wealthy person, if you're in HMO, you could switch to another doctor within that HMO, but those two people are probably friends and they're gonna listen to each other's notes and not treat you any better. If you are a wealthy person who has like Blue Cross Blue Shield or something, yeah, you could go to a totally different person in your network. And even with those notes in there, if that person you know wants to keep you as a, as a client, they're probably gonna listen to you a little bit more. But if you're a poor person and you are paying cash or you are on Medicaid or you are in the country in a rural area somewhere, you might not have the opportunity to go to another um, person. That might be the only specialist for 200 miles. Even if you're wealthy, sometimes that's the only specialist in the area. So it's go to that person or go to no one. Sometimes it's um, you're, the fact that you're disabled and you're relying on the people around you to take you to your to, to your healthcare professionals and they're only willing to take you to the one place. So how are you gonna switch doctors if you can't go to any other facility? Then there's the issue of poverty. Like with me, you know, I'm not like as poor as I was before, but I still am not on Texas's Medicaid system. They, you know, the, the process for me to get them to believe that I'm on, uh, that I'm disabled is, you know, it's needlessly complicated and I'm only going to be able to go through the process because my sister is in social work um, and she just started working in their system. That's the only reason that I'm even going to have a chance. And um, even then, I'm still going to only be limited to these doctors take med Medicaid. 
So if I want to go to a doctor that doesn't take Medicaid, I can't switch. Sometimes that might be the only doctor in that specialty who takes Medicaid. Sometimes that may be, may be the only doctor that I can go to that takes cash if I have to pay cash. So switch to another doctor isn't possible for everybody. Sometimes even wealthy people can't just switch to another doctor because they have a rare disease that nobody else treats. Do you find that race is an issue as you are trying to apply for things like Medicaid and for social, the social services? Is that an issue that you've come across? I do. I do um, find that, in, especially in the area that I'm in now, I find that um, I find that my white friends who've been trying to get on the Texas Medicaid have had an easier time than me. They don't seem to have to prove as many things as I do. When I explain to them, why, you know, why aren't you on Medicaid? And I say, well, I'm still waiting on paperwork for blah, blah, blah. And they were like, paperwork? And I'm thinking, hmm, okay, so this is an official rule, but unofficially they didn't have to go through it. And I find that in a lot of different areas in, in my life that, okay, the rules say this, but they're only rules so that they can enforce them on me. On other people, yeah, it's a rule, but it's a, to them it's a technicality. For me, it's the way it is, you know. In Maryland, there's a lot more Black people. Um, excuse me, Prince George's County is like 70% Black. D.C., Washington, D.C. used to be 70% Black. So, we, you know, we were able to get, you know, more, even though there's, you know, other counties nearby that are majority white, we are able to see what our white colleagues experiences are and then also, and then have a better experiences because we can compare and then go home and say, no, this is what you do with the white people. You have to do the, do right by me here because your national agency is like 10 miles away from me. I will report you, you know, everything, the, the head of whatever is in DC, I can make life difficult for you. So we had like that proximity privilege that we could leverage from time to time. But uh, definitely don't have that here. Definitely not. I found it very suspicious how fast I got through the, I, I certainly need it. And I, I definitely qualified to get disability, but it was mm -hmm. suspiciously easy. Yeah, in, in some areas, there are barriers because of race. Um, and um, I mean, I'm happy for the people who are supposed to be on it and get on it. It just makes me sad that there's other there's others of us that need to be on it, but they push to the back of the line for no good reason. Yeah, like I uh, have like needed. nine disabilities. Like how many do I have to have before they say, you know what, you can't actually work a regular job? You know, I'm tired of having these little side hustles to just feed myself. It's too much, especially when you're sick and you're trying to manage your health. Exactly, it's like being chronically ill is a full-time job filling out paperwork and waiting for this specialist to call back and waiting for that call from this pharmacy and going back and forth from a doctor and getting enough rest and getting enough sleep and eating the right food and investigating things tracking your own health and tracking the things is this making me allergic is that making me bloated is this thing exacerbating the skin condition why do i have a skin condition what is making me itchy? It's just so much just handling the actual sicknesses and, and, and illnesses and the routines and all of those things. And then on top of that, 
to have an actual, to, to try to make money and try to take care of your kids. It's like one of those things has to, be, has to go, you know? Do you want to discuss the, the background as you had, um, you had talked about the start of gynecology and it's one of the most horrific stories I've ever heard, but how far back do you want to go on medical racism? Do you want to give like a historical? Yeah, I don't have a lot of the historical context because it just, it, it horrified me too much and I stopped reading about it, but I do want to encourage people to read um, the work of T.L. Lewis, Talila Lewis, their um, handle on Twitter is at T as in Tom, L as in Lewis, I guess, Lewis, T.L. Lewis online. They have the study that they did, this lecture that they did for the Longmore Institute was fabulous. I, I, um, Alice Wong told me about it and we live tweeted the whole thing. It was incredible. There's a video and she, they also have um, the transcript on their website and the uh, study guide about it on their website that ties ableism and racism together and shows that the roots of ableism are in racism and that you don't even have to be um, disabled to experience ableism. And it's just a really, really interesting research that, that has been done and and they have done a lot of historical study and have a lot of data that a lot of people would find really um, interesting and informative. They have all that um, um, information on their on their website. So I would say go to their website, go to their Twitter handle, follow them. They always have really interesting um, things to say and really great research that you can follow up on on your own and great stuff for you to read and study. Yeah, if you, you're going to go into the history um, in your research, uh, it just prepare yourself. It's it, it's so much worse than you can imagine, um, especially really the gynecology. Is. Like that was that was pure trauma to read about. And um, if you're not ready to read that, that's understandable. But just be very aware that this is um, this is the past and the present. The idea that Black women do not feel pain at the same way um, is actually in modern textbooks. Like that's yeah. That is something that's still taught right now, and the death rate, maternal death rate, I believe, is thirty percent higher mm -hmm. for Black mothers. Um, yeah, Tiara came on the show a few months ago uh, because she had just had a, a baby, and just how all of the different fears she had going mm -hmm. into into that hospital, going in as a pregnant, disabled mother um, that yeah. I did not have. That was not something that was on my radar, and the things she had to worry about were so much right. more intense, so much more life threatening. Yeah, my mother almost died having my um, sister, the, who, who bore the two sets of twins that are like, I'm co-mothering. And um, um, she also almost died having her twins and neither one of them should have been in that position. And um, if she, if my sister hadn't had the second set of twins, she would have died from an injury that happened from the first set of twins that they didn't catch. So it's just like, you know, why isn't anybody looking for these things in black women when it's, it's almost to the point where it's predictable the things that they are going to neglect us for. So it, it's a scary thing that just having a baby, you know, you're going to be 30% more at risk just trying to bring life into the world. 
And then that actual life, once it gets here, is going to have a lower birth rate. It's, it's terrifying. And then you also think you have a boy and you think, you know, this child is going to be a target for, you know, uh, of police brutality and that just your girls aren't safe from it either. They're just a little bit less likely to have to go through that. They have officers in their schools now. Um, they, they, a couple of weeks ago, they took a, a six-year-old girl in handcuffs, you know, to, to a police squad car and made her think that she was being arrested. Six years old, you know, who arrests six-year-old children? It's just, you, you have this fear about what is gonna happen to my babies. And then they are old, they get to be old enough, like right now, to understand that this racism is happening all around them. And then, you know, things like happen with George Floyd and you spend your nights holding them. They're brave all day, but then at night you're holding crying children. So it, it, it's a lot. And the racism doesn't stop with the, the medical things. It goes on and on and on. And it also goes on with, um, my sister took um, my, um, number three of the twins to the hospital because he had this terrible cough in February, um, right when, right before all the COVID stuff started. I had had bronchitis at that time and I had been sick since like October, just completely, I was constantly sick. Every bug that came in the house, I got. So I never had any days where I wasn't either the flu or the, a cold and then I ended up with bronchitis. He got sick too. He got so sick at one point that he was on the floor, he couldn't get up. His head hurt. That's how much he was, he was coughing. He kept telling me, I have a headache in my eyebrow, Momo. And so finally he woke up at night coughing and couldn't catch his breath. So she got up and took him to the hospital and they told her she was overreacting. And then the next week they started talking about COVID. So it's just like, did, was he sick then? Like, did they neglect him and he had like a mild COVID? We'll never know. He got over it. You know, luckily my mother's a nurse and she had, you know, she put through him through a course of antibiotics, gave him ibuprofen, kept him rested and, you know, pushed fluids and he got better a lot slower than he usually does because he's one of the, the ones who usually snaps right back. But um, you, just, you just can never know um, how much you're going to suffer because people don't believe you because your skin's a couple of shades darker or lighter, uh, darker than, you know, other people, you know? It, it's, it's, it's troubling. It's really troubling and it's, you know, it's a constant, it's, it's not one thing, it's another, it's a constant worry about, um, it, it's a constant worry you have to deal with. It's to the point where I sometimes neglect my health because I don't want to have that experience of going to the hospital. It's to the point, it, it's like I'm, I have to pick between my mental health and my physical health. If I go to the hospital, it's gonna be traumatic. Mm. So is my physical problem bad enough that I want to risk my mental health. And I have to make that choice all the time. And it may seem sometimes that that's a ridiculous conversation to have with yourself, but I know how bad it can get for me if my mental health dips below a certain point. 
So that I have to say to myself, okay, maybe this can wait until I see the doctor. You know, they, um, they, they just, somebody just tweeted out on Twitter. Um, I retweeted somebody yesterday who, um, re who was, um, who had a TikTok by a doctor who was still saying, who was still talking about the medical racism and that um, talking about how certain symptoms present differently in black people and they just don't want to teach medical um, students the difference. Like people with leukemia who are black, we do not get pale. It looks different on us. And people don't believe that we have leukemia because we don't look pale. You know, it, it, it becomes a real problem when you go to the hospital and you're like, I have a fever of 100.6 and I was told to come to the hospital because I have leukemia. And they're like, you don't look like you have leukemia. And it's like, okay, well, can you call my doctor? And, you know, meanwhile, you know that because when you, that when you have a fever, your, um, um, beast, uh, your, um, lymphocytes will start to multiply and because you make abnormal ones it's problematic if you have to if, you, if they start to multiply too, too quickly so you need to bring your fever down because it could trigger your cancer from dormant it's active so while they're wasting time arguing with you that you don't have leukemia it could be activating your cancer and it's just it's just it's a lot is my is my point it's a lot it's a lot of extra that you have to deal with that. Um, yeah, that I, I don't even know what else to say about that, except yeah. how, I mean, saying it's unfair and unacceptable is such like small words to what you've dealt with. Um, one of the things that strikes me as we're talking is I'm wondering mm -hmm. how much worse it is for someone, especially teenagers who have to have a medical device, like be it like yeah. an attachment of insulin or an inhaler and how mm -hmm. they might be treated differently by police in schools or by teachers who are, if they're using it, if they're less believed because they yeah. they need this. Because I know that there have been kids at the school who've had their inhalers knocked out of their hands because a teacher thought it was a vape pen. I yeah, or can't drugs. Even... My niece, you met her, Michaela, she has an asthma inhaler. They don't want to allow her to use it. Sometimes the gym teacher doesn't believe that she really has asthma, even though she's been told several times. My, she's not allowed to carry it with her. She's supposed to go to the nurse. It's like she has asthma. She might not make it to the nurse. They don't understand that asthma, with asthma, you literally cannot breathe. And it's only because I've experienced it that I'm able to educate, you know, everybody else in the house that that rule is unacceptable. We have to have her keep the inhaler on her and just, if she gets in trouble, we'll just have to cover for her. And there's a because kid that dies every year because of this. Every year, a kid every seems year? to, like it's in the news. Almost every year, you will hear of a kid who dies because the teacher didn't believe them and they weren't able to get to, like, <laughs> I mean, it, as we talk about, like, people who are not believed, I feel like kids are super not believed about their pain levels or, um, and I'm sure it's so much worse on the other side of things, but yeah, there's, there's always every year, there's a news story about a kid who needed an inhaler and the teacher was like, mm, it's not that bad, or you don't have that, or, and the, they can't get to the nurse in time. Mm -hmm. And like, I just wonder how much worse that is. Um, yeah, I, I hear all these stories about like the inhaler's not being given out or that the 
teachers don't believe that the, um, I heard about some kid who had their, uh, oh God, sorry, brain cells are going so fast. It's, it's, fine. it's just so it. quick. But the- um, Yeah, I've been sitting here for like 10 minutes trying to think of the other two articles yeah. about, you know, I'll just have to send them to you. You know, and yeah, so apologies, everyone. We're, yeah. we're doing our best. We are two sick people who are trying to know, right? to pulley an episode together. Um, but I do have. Um, if you're uh, if you're listening to this, and you're like, hey, I don't know, or I want more information on yeah. the show notes. I usually spend about five hours when I talk to Tinu going through research. So I <laughs> show notes are a thing for me. I feel very passionately about them. So if you head over to yeah. our show notes, there'll be links for a second. I'm still being interviewed. It is not one o'clock. All right. Yeah. Sorry about that. We, we did take a, uh, I think that ended up being a half hour break of us talking about yep. very random things from Hamilton to parenting. <laughs> so uh, back onto medical racism. Um, is there anything that I have not asked or covered that I should have for this episode not like you aren't going to be back because you know I'm going to like randomly just schedule you yeah um this is something new that I've been thinking about that I haven't really discussed at length anywhere there is psychological damage that comes with racism and there's no standard treatment for it so Mm. what damage could we be doing because we're damaged and that's just something I think about that makes it kind of a mental health crisis that needs to be solved in the near future it makes it it kind of makes it everybody's problem even even more so than it already is the things that you've talked about are such a high level anxiety about daily things and to live at that level of fear and anxiety that has to have some pretty intense health effects mentally and physically consistently and the thing is it's so hidden that people think oh you know yeah racism exists but it's just this occasional nuisance and it's not you know we have the medical racism we have and it's institutionalized it's not just one or two doctors it's in the it's within the mm. institution the way they teach doctors brings this out of them it's not that it's for a lot of them it's not that they're doing this on purpose it's that the institution teaches them this sometimes unintentionally then then you have you know things that happen in the workplace then you have things that happen with um institutions like the police department we can separate out policing from law enforcement because we don't need to be policed we never did Mm. um there's things in you know just being able to go and get something to eat you know retail there's so many different areas where we're getting hit with this racism from all different sides and it it results in this kind of a I I call it post-traumatic racism disorder that you have this this um you're it's like you're constantly on the brink of this rage sometimes and you don't want to take it out on people but what do you do with that you know you if you internalize it it turns into hypertension if you let it out you're that angry black person so it's hard to figure out what do I do with the stuff you know and it, it's a mental health crisis on its own that we need to start talking about and figuring out treatments for. How do we treat the the survivors of racism? Because also not everyone survives. Some people are are dying of racism. The stress exacerbates things like heart attacks and 
and in strokes and diabetes and even cancer. So I put out to everyone, I let everyone know that we we're going to be doing this interview and asked if anyone had any questions. And one oh. of the questions was um, a, a question that I, I, I hesitate to ask because it's not your, your job to answer this, but if you would mm -hmm. like to, if you have something available, that's awesome. But she was asking how someone can be an ally in this, in this. how can um, people who see that this is a huge problem, this bias in medicine, is there anything that can be done from, from the outsider from allyship that could help? Be an advocate for black people. In fact, I would encourage white people, especially those who are able to start a volunteer advocate uh, alliance because there's people like right now, I have a friend who is in the hospital. She's all by herself and mm. she doesn't have anybody to advocate for her because her family's in a different country. And because of the situation that she's in, nobody can come and see her. So she can't even, you know, she, it would be helpful if she could have somebody advocate for her by phone. And if she wasn't in the situation that she's in, it'd be helpful if there was somebody in her local area who could come and advocate for her or just be a witness for her. People who don't have anybody to stand up for them, it'd be nice if there was some kind of volunteer network of privileged people, whether that privilege was class or, uh, whether it was a racial privilege, whatever kind of privilege that they have to come and be able to speak up for some of those people on occasion that was independent of the hospital. Because when it's the social worker that works for the hospital, ultimately their allegiance is to the hospital. When it's an advocate from outside the hospital, they have to be paid, you know? Um, and then also look to your friends. If you have friends who are disabled, ask them, do you need an advocate to come with you to your appointment sometimes? Do you need a ride to your appointment sometimes to save you on gas money? Do you need me to be with you in an appointment when you go to see a, a doctor? Do you need me to back you up when you have some complaint with the doctor? Do you ever need me to witness some conduct that your doctor is doing so that I can um, help you lodge this complaint? Is there any way that I can stand up for you as a as a person who may um, be able to leverage my privilege to make your situation better? So that that's one one thing that you can do. You can also um, come in a couple of minutes later than your friend when they go to the ER and just be an observer kind of advocate, just to, just to see what happens with them and then only intercede if something's not going well, just so that you can, just so you can witness what happens when we don't have advocates, just so that you can see the things that happen to us when they think nobody is watching. Because it's very important to know the difference between what happens to you and what happens to us. And it's just like with George Floyd, it's one thing to hear about it, and we've been talking about it as Black people probably our whole lives. It is another thing to witness it in real time for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's what woke up everybody in the country. So if you can take yourself with your Black friends, your Latino friends, your Asian friends, and be a silent witness at any time, that will help you understand the situations that we're in, and it will help you inform yourself on how you can be of better help.
And also First Nations. There's been so much First violence Nations, lately course. against First Nations in the last few A weeks. It's, it's been brutal to watch. Um, I love how you gave that list. And I just want to remind people that when you want to help, um, asking how you can help is not necessarily helpful. Giving actual things that you can do. Like um, mm -hmm. this, we, we have a very good list here of ways that you can advocate that are very specific that you can ask if you can do this for someone. So that's that's a good way to help out is to ask very specifically what you can do. Because I know like for myself and I, we've talked about this before that the worst thing someone does is, oh, can I help you? And then you have the emotional weight of trying to figure out how they can help and if it's right. a way that they could help and now you have to negotiate. Like it's so much easier when someone just comes to you with a, I can exactly. do Exactly, and then there's sometimes you don't know what they could do or you're just not emotionally prepared to figure it out. Sometimes you're just in so, you're so overwhelmed, you wouldn't know what to tell them, period, anyway. So you say no because you don't know what to tell them. You yeah. are looking for somebody to help you figure out how you can get help. I, I know you're probably in the same boat, but I say no so often just because I don't have the emotional capacity to try to figure it out. <laughs> yes, exactly. I am a lot of the time. Well, you and I are at two hours. I think this episode is only an hour. <laughs> we do this a lot. We do hit pause a lot and just riff for a while. And someday I'm just yep. going to like, just keep the record going. Cause I, 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 if we're having this much fun, I'm sure someone else would have fun listening to us. Exactly. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So you're going to come back next week, I believe, where we are going yep. to discuss um, how to have a thick skin, find your voice, and be able to express yourself as a disabled person, someone with chronic illness. I'm very excited for this episode because I don't always do this well. So I'm, <laughs> I learned a lot from you by watching your Twitter. <laughs> you teach Yay. me so much. Um, I'm so, so happy please. That I can. You've taught, you're, you're amazing. Um, I, I really enjoyed becoming friends with you. Uh, this is a big upside to running this podcast is getting to meet really awesome people. So I am very grateful. Um, go to our show notes. All this will be linked up. I'm going to probably spend about another five hours like doing the research and, and getting this all linked up. So that will all be right there. Please follow Tinu on all of the social media. I will have all of that linked up. Um, and you know, as always uh, be kind, be gentle in whatever way it looks like to you be a badass. It's never been more important. So that's how I guess we will close this out and, um, enjoy the week, everyone do the best you can. If you are really enjoying this podcast and Eva's podcast, um, need more of us head over to our Facebook group. That's been really active and it's becoming a really beautiful community. So a great place to go and tell us uh, what you think or what you want more of, or just to hang out and chat with us. If you also want some more, we have a blog and you can head over to our website, invisiblenotbroken.com. Kindest thing you can do for us is we have a Patreon account. This is all done out of even my pocket. So if you want to support us, that'd be really great. That's just not in your budget. Um, the next best, most wonderful thing you can do is leave a really embarrassingly nice review on Apple Podcasts hit subscribe and share these episodes with your friends and with your community. That'd be amazing. And we are so grateful for that. We are completely advertised through your word of mouth. So thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Be kind, be gentle, and it's never been more important in whatever way you can be a badass.